What's a country artist's favorite part of a playground? Wait for it. Wait for it. The slide. Ah, uh, yeah, I know it wasn't funny. Maybe it was the way I told it. Yeah, uh, whatever. Here's an intro or something. Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy, famous artists I'll never be able to play like, and topics or tips about guitars and music recording. So this week, I'll let you in on a little secret. If you're listening to this episode, uh, it's another time capsule. Uh, It means I'm not back yet. I recorded this the same time that I recorded the last two episodes, just in case stuff ran a little over, and I guess it has. I wonder what I'm doing right now. You know, hopefully, probably sitting on a beach somewhere, drinking something great, you know, chocolate milk, something like that. But uh, highly doubt it. So, you know, if you're uh, if you're there, just put put some thoughts out for me, put some positive stuff out for me, because I'm still away. <laughs> All right. So, for our news this week, JHS is arguably one of my favorite pedal builders on the market. Maybe I'm biased by watching their YouTube channel all the time, maybe I'm not, but I know that every single pedal I own made by them is easily a slam dunk. That's why I was really excited when I saw them expanding on their Legends of Fuzz lineup. It's no secret that I'm a huge fan of vintage-style fuzz pedals. I love the Valkyrie, rippy sounds you can get when the voltage drops and the fuzz starts to get really gated. And Josh Scott seems to be a master of recreating these older circuits. All the Legends of Fuzz pedal come, pedals come in a larger black enclosure with the knobs on the rearward-facing panel, similar to the enclosure of the original Maestro Fuzz Tone. A lot of them have some expanded functionality and little push buttons on the side, and they're all really aesthetically pleasing. They've just got this simple black-and-white font with a name, then the year and location the original circuit was made. The first line included the bender, a copy of the Solosound Tone Bender, the Crimson, a copy of the Electroharmonics Red Army Overdrive, the Smiley, a copy of the Arbiter Fuzz Face, and the Supreme, a copy of the Univox Super Fuzz. Each one of them was an instant smash hit. This new release features three additions to the line, as well as a nice little utility pedal to use with any of your favorite fuzzes. The first is called the Plugin, which at first was pretty confusing, as Plugin typically refers to a digital effect used inside a DAW and a computer but it actually refers to an older style of pedal that couldn't really be called a pedal. Some effects, such as the first LPB-1, a lot of Dan Armstrong pedals, and in this case, the Jordan Boss tone, were these units that had a male quarter-inch jack right on the body of the enclosure, so they plugged directly into into your guitar, sort of like a modern headphone amp. The plug-in fuzz is meant to be a clone of the Jordan Boss tone, which in itself is a pretty rare fuzz effect that doesn't see too many copies. In fact, one of the copies of the Jordan Boss Tone isn't actually meant to be a copy of it. It's the Electroharmonics Satisfaction Fuzz. It's meant to get you the tone off the Rolling Stones song Satisfaction, but that was done with a Maestro Fuzz Tone. I'm curious why they went with a Boss Tone circuit, but to date, the Satisfaction Fuzz and now the JHS plugin are the two only mass-produced clones I've ever seen based on the Jordan unit. The JHS plugin has two knobs for volume and attack, as well as a JHS mode, which boosts the gain and increases your mid-range. The next one is the Berkeley, modeled after the Seamoon Fresh Fuzz, a vintage unit from 1973 that was originally in a Bakelite enclosure, leading a majority of the original units to shatter. 
It's best known for being used by Eric Johnson, and the JHS Berkeley has two knobs for gain and bite, as well as a bright switch, which even further increases the response in the high end. The third release is the Mary K, a copy of the K fuzz tone developed in late 60s Japan, which, surprisingly, was not at all a copy of the Maestro fuzz tone, but rather the Univox Super Fuzz. The K fuzz tone was unique in that it looked like a wah pedal, it had no knobs, but a single treadle that dialed in either more or less fuzz. The JHS Mary Kay has two knobs, one for volume, one for frequency, and a switch that boosts the mid-frequency response. It's also got an expression pedal jack, so if you really feel the need to use it with a treadle instead of setting the knobs, that option's there for you too. While all those pedals are great, the thing that I'm most excited about is more of a utility than anything, the Vulture. We all know fuzz pedals can get some great sounding tones when they're fed by a dying 9 volt battery, but batteries die quickly, so once you get to your sweet spot where you got a good tone, the battery will die even further and leave you with something else, so it's difficult to get consistently. With the JHS Vulture, it sort of serves as a similar purpose to the SAG control on Voodoo Labs power supplies. It's got a single knob and two 9 volt jacks. You connect it to your power supply, then the other end to the power supply input to your fuzz, and it allows you to starve the voltage heading to your pedal to get a consistent, repeatable, dying battery tone. This is definitely something that I'm going to have to pick up and check out. It looks great. Each of the fuzz pedals in the Legends line is $179, and the Vulture is a mere $80. If you're fuzz curious, you owe it to yourself to at least try one of these. Pink Floyd's flagship album, Dark of the Moon, was massively successful. One of the ways you know your work has achieved legend status is when people start developing quasi-conspiracy theories about it. And I'm sure almost everyone's heard that if you listen to Dark Side of the Moon in reverse, it perfectly syncs up with the Wizard of Oz movie. This theory is pretty flimsy at best, with the real news being that some of the profits of the album were invested in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If that's not a, a conspiracy for the UK to gain a footing in contemporary film again, I don't know what is. Roger Waters was the bassist for Pink Floyd, and he was actually the primary writer for most of their songs. Ever the perfectionist, he's recently announced that him, along with Pink Floyd guitarist David Gilmour and drummer Nick Mason, will be recording a reimagining of the entire album. Roger Waters is actually pretty protective over this, giving some extreme quotes about his contribution to the band, saying things like, let's get rid of all this we crap, of course we were a band, the four of us all contributed, but it's my project and I wrote it. As well as things like, uh, Nick never pretended, but Gilmore and Rick, they can't write songs. They got nothing to say. They're not artists. They got no ideas. Not a single one between them. Yikes. Wouldn't want to work with him. So far, he's only released a 53-second teaser of the song Us and Them, which sounds much more deep and gloomy than the original. I'm pretty excited for it, and it's due to release in full sometime in May of this year. Maybe since it's gloomier and more modern, you gotta play this one backwards along to Wicked instead of Wizard of Oz? <laughs> it's ironic that this next bit of news came up, considering our famous piece of gear for this week, but Gibson is now offering certified vintage guitars for sale. There's a pretty sizable chunk of the guitar community, well, at least a chunk that's way better off than I am, who are interested in buying vintage instruments, similar to many other areas of collecting things. However, vintage guitars are the perfect storm for some less-than-scrupulous people to produce and introduce fakes into the market. I think it really boils down to a combination of two factors. The first, vintage guitars can fetch prices higher than most modern production cars. 
We're talking in the tens and $20,000 areas for stuff in great condition, even if it hasn't had a famous owner or a story behind it. A couple months ago, maybe even a year ago now, I don't remember, somebody was selling just a Stratocaster neck that had a serial number directly after the neck put on Eric Clapton's strap for a couple grand. I don't know if it ever sold, but I don't think somebody would put it on reverb if they didn't think there was at least a chance that it would. The second factor that I think contributes to a lot of counterfeit vintage guitars is the relative ease with which it can be done. It's not like vintage cars where numerous parts are date stamped or parts are out of production so you need a specialized factory to fabricate them. Most modern guitars use parts and finishes that are either the same or extremely similar to parts used on guitars made in the 50s and 60s. Look at a Fender Strat reissue today and a Fender Strat from the 50s or 60s. At face value, sure, there's a few things that tip you off, maybe truss rod access placement or the style of tuners, but by and large, they look nearly identical. Some electrical components have date codes on them that can assist in identifying the instrument, but all somebody would have to do is maybe rub the date code off, burn it off with a soldering iron so it looks like a mishap at the factory, or say, oh, just that part was bad, so it's replaced. Even in terms of the look, there's a whole industry around relic guitars and making them look old very accurately. So it's not hard to imagine somebody just practicing relicking, getting good at water slide decals, and making a fake vintage guitar. I know that was a bit of a tangent, but it's an important perspective to have in mind when looking at it. I know the guitar community rags on Gibson a lot and sees the company as somewhat full of themselves, and I'll be honest, when I saw this at first I was like, oh boy, here we go again. But sitting down and thinking about it, I see it as a pretty cool thing. Granted, this isn't something that's for your average person just going out and buying their first, second, or even third guitar. This is for that die-hard collector that they know that they want a 1959 gold top Les Paul, and they want to be sure that that's what they're getting. As of yet, it doesn't look like you can send your own guitar in for this certified vintage program, but rather Gibson themselves buys these guitars off the market, then certifies and resells them as they come across them. Each one of the certified vintage guitars comes with a certificate of authenticity, a letter of appraisal, and a limited lifetime warranty, which a warranty for something older than I am is just bonkers to me. So far, they put up a few for sale, like a 1957 ES-225T and a 1961 SG Standard to name a few, but they're now teasing that their next release is going to be an instrument previously owned by a world-famous celebrity. I'm curious to see what it is, but I'm sure it'll be up on their website soon. Kind of hoping it'll be one of Les Paul's Les Paul's. <laughs> you know, if I had the stage name Rhubarb Bread, I'm sorry, but I don't think I'd play anywhere. Much less do any kind of internet show, I, I just couldn't do it. I mean, the original Rhubarb Bread was no stranger to an interesting name. Lester William Pulsefus, or as you and I may know him, Les Paul. Yeah, believe it or not, Les Paul actually performed as a child at drive-in theaters around Wisconsin by the names of Red Hot Red and Rhubarb Red. He was a spunky kid at the age of 13. Few could imagine that he would go on to be associated with one of the most prolific guitars in history. This week, we're going to be talking about the history and development behind the Gibson, Les Paul, and SG, the brand's two flagship models that have stuck around for a few decades short of a century. See, Les Paul was an inventor inventing the neck-worn harmonica holder, and performing early experiments with trying to create an electric guitar in the 1920s and 30s that were ultimately unsuccessful, but he never stopped attempting to invent. One of his unsuccessful inventions included an attempt to increase the sustain of his guitar by using a two-foot-long piece of train rail, a concept he would later revisit in 1940 when he built his first somewhat solid-body guitar he dubbed the Log. 
Now the log has a pretty interesting name, but if you look at a picture of it, you can see exactly why it was called that. It's literally just a 4x4 piece of lumber with the sides of an Epiphone guitar attached to it to act as wings for comfort and make it look more normal. In 1941, Les Paul went to talk with Gibson about mass-producing and selling his guitar. At this point, Les Paul was already a nationally known act, so he definitely had the weight to throw around in terms of pitching this idea. It wasn't like he was just some random Joe off the street like, hey, how about we build this? He'd worked tirelessly in the Epiphone factory, which at that time was a separate company from Gibson, to make the best solid body guitar prototype he possibly could, putting hours of labor into specking it out and making a quality instrument. And he aimed his design at Gibson because he thought that Epiphone was about to go underwater. But still didn't convince Gibson, who blew off the idea until 1950. In fact, they actually laughed him out of the office, stating that he basically had a broomstick with some pickups mounted on it. It's a pretty sick burn for the luthier community. Well, what changed? In 1948, Gibson took on a new employee, Ted McCarty, who saw the promise in the design and began working with initial drawings and sketches that Les Paul had pitched to Gibson. But he changed things pretty drastically. Les Paul's design was still large and thick like a jazz box, something that would ultimately be changed in favor of a thinner, sleeker design. It's well known that Les Paul actually hung out with Leo Fender at the time, who may have had quite a bit of influence on Les Paul's design of a solid-body guitar, so Gibson wanted to distance themselves as much as possible from the contemporary California-based models, creating something that would be seen as a much more premium instrument with a price tag to match. The majority of the design was actually the result of Ted McCarty's influences and tests with numerous different types of materials, including solid maple, mahogany, and even a railroad tack, with McCarty saying that they eventually decided upon mahogany with a maple top due to the fact that the maple would give the guitar a large amount of sustain, with mahogany taming the shrill sound. I'm still not too convinced on Tonewoods, but hey, I mean, I'll give it to them. They've manufactured a world-famous guitar. I haven't. While Fender's solid-body guitars of the time were sleek and vibrant, looking like contemporary hot-rodded cars, Gibson wanted a more traditional, classy look to attract the highbrow clientele they saw themselves serving. This led them to make their guitar with less chrome outfitting, more muted paint jobs, and a more classic shape, similar to an acoustic, but with a single cut on the lower bout to provide easy access to the upper frets. They also made the Les Paul a carve-top guitar, sort of to turn their nose up at Fender, because Fender didn't have the facilities to create carve-top guitars like Gibson did, and carve-tops were still seen as a sort of classy feature due to their similarity to violins and violas. Ted McCarty brought a prototype of the guitar to Les Paul at his hunting lodge in Pennsylvania, and Les Paul and his wife Mary Ford played it for hours, really enjoying it, before they decided to go into business with the same corporation that had laughed Les Paul out of the office a week earlier. They agreed to feature his name on the headstock, which I suppose could make this the first signature model guitar. The first production Les Paul was a gold top with P90s and a trapeze tailpiece, reminiscent of older archtop jazz guitars with the gold paint interestingly serving a dual purpose, to market the instrument as high-end and to hide the blemishes in the maple Gibson was using for the tops. The guitar was officially released in 1952 when Les Paul took to his stage in New York with this brand new style of instrument. The next year, 1953, sees the debut of the Les Paul Custom. The Custom quickly introduced some changes and updates to the design, 
including Seth Lover's PAF, or patent-applied four pickups, the first style of humbuckers. The custom also saw the introduction of a wraparound bridge, and in 1954, we start to see the first two pneumatic bridges with their hard-tailed partners in crime. While the Les Paul custom met huge success, the way Ted McCarty describes it is much less glamorous, essentially boiling down to the fact that they kept getting blemished mahogany from Honduras, so they began painting it solid black and putting binding on it, then charging even more for it due to the fact that car manufacturers at the time had a bunch of different models, so McCarty felt Gibson needed to have more models too. 1958 saw the replacement of the gold top finish with a sunburst finish, which was a commercial flop that caused Gibson to only produce sunburst Les Pauls for three years, till 1961 when they introduced the SG in response to complaints that guitars were considered to be too heavy and old-fashioned. The SG, or solid guitar, was designed in 1960 amid the failing sales of traditional Les Pauls, but interestingly, it was still called a Les Paul, just considered to be a newer version. The SG featured a much thinner, all-mahogany body and a double cutaway for even easier upper fret access. Altogether, a very different-looking model from the traditional Les Paul. While the guitar sold like wildfire, Les Paul himself hated it, and due to a spiteful divorce with his then-wife Mary Ford, he asked Gibson to remove his name from the headstock of the SG and cancelled his royalty contract, leading to the renaming of the model to the SG in 1963. Gibson's ad campaign for the SG was that it was a modern player's guitar for the budding rock scene and claimed to have the fastest neck in the world, which I will give him credit for. The SG neck is very comfortable and fast, especially when compared to the thick, chunky neck on a Les Paul, and it's a little bit more comfortable than a vintage Fender profile neck. In 1964, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones began using a 1959 Les Paul, probably where a lot of the hype for specifically 1959 Les Pauls come from, which revitalized public opinion about the Les Paul standard. The next year, Eric Clapton began using Les Pauls. In 1967, it was Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead who made the switch, and other artists like Peter Green and Jimmy Page further intensified the demand for the Les Paul, causing Gibson to reintroduce it to the market in 1968. I think that the Les Paul gaining traction in the UK market is part of the reason that Les Pauls are typically associated with Marshall amps, simply because the wave of British guitarists in the 60s and 70s who wanted to use their homegrown amplifier of choice all started taking after each other around the same time, making the two pieces of gear appear united. In 1969, Gibson came under the control of a corporation known as ECL, and then was sold five years later to another parent company called Norland Musical Instruments, who owned it up until 1986. During this time period, the overall quality of Les Pauls and SGs saw a pretty measurable drop, as well as the introduction of some less-than-impressive models. During this era, necks changed from one-piece mahogany to three pieces of maple, bodies changed from solid mahogany and maple tops to pieced mahogany and maple, which created unsightly lines where the pieces were glued together, all in an effort to save costs. Some changes during this time weren't all bad, such as shielding in the pickup mounting cavities to reduce hum, and reinforcing the angle the headstocks had at to reduce breakage. One of the most interesting productions of this era was something called the Les Paul Recording, a space-age-looking Les Paul that had to come with a demo desk, which just so happened to be narrated by Les Paul to explain its controls. It included a pickup selector switch, two-band bass and treble EQ, a tone selector switch, which bypassed the EQ knobs, a high and low impedance switch for recording directly into a mixing board, a decade control, which changes the treble harmonics, 
and a switch to put the pickups in or out of phase along with the volume control. Now I'm a control freak, uh, but I feel like that's a little too much for me on a guitar that's going on there. I'm more comfortable with what a Jaguar has going on and that's about my limit. In 1986, Gibson began to go back to their roots by creating a custom shop division which specialized in the reissuing of legacy Les Paul and SG models in addition to creating signature models for Gibson affiliated artists. While the Les Paul and SG have undergone little change since the 1980s, there are a few key models to hit on in case you want to pick one up for yourself. Here we'll be talking about the most popular reissues Gibson currently offers. Starting with the Les Pauls, Les Paul Gold, Stop, Gold Top Standard 50s is $27.99. It's got a mahogany body, maple top, mahogany neck, two P90s, gold finish, nearly true to spec as the original Les Paul, save for a two-nomatic and hardtail bridge instead of the trapeze tailpiece originally featured. I'll be honest, I wouldn't want a trapeze tailpiece either. The Les Paul Custom is five grand. Uh, major differences here are a black finish, ebony fretboard, and two PAF style humbuckers instead of the P90s, in addition to some cosmetic changes, like additional binding and gold hardware. That's a lot of $2,200 for mostly a different color. Oh god, that hurts. Uh, the Les Paul Standard 60s, uh, they're $2,799. You're back to a rosewood fingerboard, chrome hardware, but now with a sunburst finish and missing the binding of the custom. Les Paul Jr. is $15.99. This originally debuted to target the student guitarists and featured a single P90 pickup, two control knobs, a wraparound bridge, and a thinner flat top body that still had the single cut shape. The reissue is still true to spec, but I can't imagine many beginners dropping $1,600 on a guitar. <laughs> The Les Paul Special is $17.99, and it's essentially the same as the Junior. It was released shortly thereafter, with the only difference being that we now see two P90 pickups, a pickup selector, and the traditional two-volume, two-tone control pattern. The Les Paul Deluxe is $27.99. We're back to our gold top finish, but we have two mini humbucking pickups instead of the traditional full-size humbuckers. The Les Paul Black Beauty is $71.99. It's definitely one of the more top-end models. Uh, these, these have ebony fingerboards, a Bigsby tremolo system, three humbuckers, and a host of other high-class features such as body binding. That's just, that's a lot of money for a guitar. I don't know. The SG saw admittedly less model variations, with some of the most common being the SG Standard. It goes for just under two grand. It's got a mahogany body and neck, rosewood fretboard, two PAF-style humbuckers, the SG Junior, which curiously goes for three grand, it's essentially the same concept as the Les Paul Junior. It's a single P90 and a wraparound bridge being the big departure from the standard. I don't understand why it's more expensive. The SG Special is $15.99. It once again borrows from the Les Paul Special's features. We see two P90s and a return to the traditional four knob control pattern. The SG Custom is $46.99. These had two humbucking pickups, as well as a maestro-style tremolo unit on the guitar. While those Gibson prices might scare you, I mean, to be honest, they scare me, Epiphone's got you covered if you want something much more budget-friendly. I have two Epiphones, a Les Paul and an SG, and I have no issues with either one. And of course, there's countless other Les Paul and SG models that are a little less common than the ones I've listed here. So if I missed your favorite, hit me up on my email or social media, Tell me why I'm a terrible person. I know I already am, but you'll give me some new phrases to try out in the mirror every morning. I mean, come on, I'm running out of ammunition here. 
You know something really fun to say? Space Lord Mother. <laughs> what? I wasn't gonna say it. I promise. Yeah, that's Bigsby. She doesn't like swears, and we gotta keep the show family friendly since she's only a year old. Anyway, the song with probably one of the stranger titles in 90s music was written by a band of stoner rock masters called Monster Magnet, and today I figured we'd go over the tone that goes into the song, because it's been stuck in my head, and I feel like this is the only way to get it out. Monster Magnet was founded in Red Bank, New Jersey in 1989 as a trio by Dave Windorf, John McBain, and Tim Cronin, with two guitars and no bassist. I know as guitarists we rag on bassists quite a bit, uh, but I hate to say it, they may be a little more necessary than we are. Don't leave out your bassist. Even Monster Magnet realized their mistake and picked one up not even two years later. The name Monster Magnet comes from a toy in the 1960s. It's basically this horseshoe-shaped red object that had the face and arms of a monster. They made some pretty wild claims about it, like that it had the strength to pull a Volkswagen. I, I don't know. Interesting name, though. From 1989 to 1990, Monster Magnet released two demo tapes on their own that centered simply around, you guessed it, getting stoned, before signing with Caroline Records. There, they released their first album, titled Spine of God, which is still within the top 50 stoner rock albums of all time. The Caroline Records area was pretty weird. They released another album called Tab, which has a 32-minute long title track that's full of all kinds of strange loops and delays and just sounds really trippy. In 1992, the band signed with A&M Records and released two albums within the next three years, both of which were commercially unsuccessful, but the second one, Dopes to Infinity, did feature the song Negasonic Teenage Warhead, which was a big hit to the point that it was played on MTV, and there's now a character in the Marvel Universe bearing the song's name. In 1998, the band recorded the album Power Trip, which was the first one to see true widespread success, especially with the single Space Lord. The newfound fame and support catapulted them into serving as a supporting act in tours for Rob Zombie and Metallica. In 2001, Monster Magnet released the album God Says No, another commercial flop, and began to fall from popularity. Monster Magnet released two albums from 2003 to 2008, seeing very limited success in Europe, and then three more albums between 2009 and 2019, never quite reaching the level of popularity that Power Trip did. Monster Magnet is still active, although Dave Windorf is the only remaining original member of the band, and their last album, A Better Dystopia, was entirely composed of 12 cover songs. Released in mid-2021, it didn't really see much success. So what's sort of annoying for this tone is I really can't find anything consistent as to what either of them use. Seems to change quite a bit. Their live videos don't show much other than the guitars and amps, so there's only one rig rundown I could really find that, and it was done much later in 2018. It showcases a lot of heavily modded stuff one of the guitarists uses that isn't easily available commercially. So we're gonna see if we can create this tone from scratch using the little bit of what we know. Everybody pray to the tone gods. So for the first time in the show's history, somebody's got me beat in the budget department. Yeah, uh, Dave Windorf, his guitar is an Epiphone SG Special. He uses a $200 guitar on all their tours and has for years. It's got a poplar body, rosewood fretboard, and a bolt-on Okuma neck. It's got two unnamed humbuckers, a tunematic, a stop-tail bridge, a single volume and tone control with a pickup selector. This thing is dead simple. I don't have it, I'm not used to guitars artists use being that cheap, and I'm kind of having an existential crisis right now. 
Eh, you know what? I'm already over it. Here, I'm going to use my Epiphone SG standard. It's 300 bucks more expensive at 499, but what am I going to do, right? I can't even say if you want something that'll hold up a little better to get mine cuz his has held up through years of touring. Really, you should be able to take any humbucker equipped equipped guitar and work with this tone. So, I'm not worrying too much. The amp is where things start to get tricky. The lead guitarist uses a heavily modded Marshall-style amplifier, while Dave Windorf uses a Fender Twin Reverb. While I was building this tone, I tried a few different amps, and even though Dave usually uses the Twin Reverb for his clean delay signal, it actually worked better for what I was trying to do here than my Marshall Origin 20. So I used the Fender Mustang GTX-50 to model a Twin Reverb. It also helped because while they play a slightly dirty guitar for the verse, in the recording it actually appears to be an acoustic. So I loaded up the acoustic simulator and EQ'd it for the verse, and then I loaded up a twin reverb model for the chorus. I've got the acoustic model set with a gain at about 10 o'clock, middle at 1 o'clock, bass at 4 o'clock, and the treble at noon. And I've got the twin reverb set with a gain at 4, volume at 5, treble at 7, middle at 5, and bass at 4. I could find very little info on the pedals other than that rig rundown that was done two decades after the release of Space Lord, so I've taken some influences from some other stoner rock bands here in choosing the pedals. First things first, I went with an op amp Big Muff. I knew I wanted something a little chaotic to drive our next pedal, so I went with an op amp Big Muff because I feel like it provides a little more grit and gain than a standard Big Muff, but it's still controlled enough to drive another pedal where something like a traditional fuzz face or a tone bender wouldn't fare as well. I've got it set with a level at 2 o'clock, tone at 2 o'clock, and sustain all the way up. While this tone may not sound great, we'll shape it up in our next step. Now if you look at various stoner, sludge, and doom metal bands, a key component of their sound is a Proco Rat. So here I'll be using the Big Muff to slam the input of the Rat, to tighten everything up, and add a little bit more bite to the distortion. It works tremendously well for what we're trying to do, and it's only 80 bucks. Current settings are level at noon, distortion at 3 o'clock, and filter at 11 o'clock. Probably the least exciting part of the rig is this last bit. I've had it on the whole time because it's been absolutely necessary with the amount of gain we've got going. In fact, if I turn it off and play, we get this. Of course, it's a noise gate, and what better choice than the ISP Decimate for 122 bucks? It's a single knob noise gate and one of the best on the market. 
while it can seem a little ridiculous having the most expensive pedal on the board be something that doesn't even affect our sound at all, you can see how necessary it truly is, especially if you're playing live, don't skimp on the noise gate. All in all, playing my rig here back and forth with the Space Lord record, I think we did really well for not knowing exactly what was going on there. I don't know many places looking for a Monster Magnet cover band, but if I was playing a venue like that, I'd be confident rocking this rig. And it's only a grand total of... 1096, which is still about $900 cheaper than Dave Windorf's rig, even not counting whatever pedals he was using back then. So we've talked about the plug-in fuzz in the news section this week. I think it's time we sat down and talked about the more traditional definition of plugins. When I talk about plugins, I'm referring to little programs you can run inside your DAW or your digital audio workstation when recording. These programs usually come in a format called VST, or Virtual Studio Technology, and they serve a myriad of functions when it comes to recording music in a home or professional environment. I personally use quite a few plugins when I'm recording. I'm actually using four right now on my voice mic, and it's what makes the difference between this show sounding like the unprofessional trash it actually is and the amateur trash you hear on your streaming service of choice. <laughs> the easiest plugins to get started with are the ones that come with your DAW. Chances are, if you're using some sort of DAW other than Audacity, it came with a host of free plugins. My DAW of choice is Cubase, and Cubase's stock plugins, well, they get the job done, but a lot of times I feel like I'm lacking control, or they're difficult to use, or they just plain don't sound good. So for a lot of the plugins that I use regularly, like a compressor, de-esser, and reverb, I went out and I bought a few online. The great thing about plugins is that they're compatible with almost any DAW, and even some non-DAW programs. For example, if you stream online using Twitch, and you feel like your volume levels are all over the place, OBS Studio actually allows you to run VST plugins on your audio sources. If you go and find any plugins online, chances are if you're using a major DAW like Pro Tools, Cubase, Ableton, FL Studio, or Reaper, they'll work within your DAW. I generally think of plugins as falling into one of four categories. In the first category are plugins that actually model analog gear. Before recording in the box and being able to use VST plugins, studios use tape recorders. Any effects that you wanted had to be accomplished with some sort of outboard effect. You would connect a jack from the recorder on the channel you wanted to adjust, then plug it into your effect, then plug the output of the effect back into another jack on that same panel. Basically, this would take your signal from the track to the rack unit, then bring it back in before it was actually recorded on the tape. Many of these analog effects units have pretty much achieved legendary status, such as the LA-2A tube compressor. And as such, a lot of plugin companies create plugins that emulate these sorts of equipment as a more budget-friendly solution to actually going and buying a vintage unit or a reissue. Just like modeling amps, plugins that emulate these classic units can vary in both quality and accuracy. You can have a plugin that sounds exactly like the unit it's emulating, a plugin that sounds great but misses the mark in terms of accuracy, or a plugin that sounds nothing like the unit it's modeling and sounds equally terrible. Generally. You get what you pay for, and free plugins usually don't have the same amount of quality that a plugin you'd pay for would possess. In the second category, we have VST instruments. VST instruments are a great way to add texture and supporting sounds to your tracks without needing to master an entirely new instrument or hire an outside session musician for the part you need. Most VST plugins can be controlled via what's called a MIDI controller, which can come in the form of something like a beat pad with a bunch of little square buttons you press to trigger effects, 
or more popular format that looks like a piano keyboard. I personally use an Arturia Keylab 49. It's one of the piano keyboard style MIDI controllers, and it allows me to play a string quartet, a piano, synthesizer, a saxophone, and various sound effects whenever I'm recording music without actually having to learn how to play a saxophone. Trust me, I don't have the lungs for that. Many MIDI controllers will come bundled with some form of VST instrument software. My Arturia came bundled with Analog Lab 5, which allows me to go from some soft string ensembles like this to synthesizer nonsense like this. And everything in between. In the third category of plugins, you'll see your utility style plugins. For me, utility style plugins are usually effects that you wouldn't see in a rack mount unit, something that really can only be accomplished by a computer. These are usually some of your more modern effects that tend to fix things that are wrong with your tracks. For example, it's ungodly hot in my studio, so I usually use a plugin to remove the noise from my air conditioner. Right now, I'm using Clarity VX from Waves. If I turn it off, it sounds like this. You can hear the AC, you can hear noise from my computer, and anything else going on in the room, like my chair when it clicks. Right? All noises that we wouldn't want in our recordings. But as soon as I turn it back on, it goes away. All that background noise is stuff that I can't really EQ out of my main vocal mic without drastically affecting my voice. So for me, that was 100% worth it. I think it was like 30 bucks online, and it works great. Another example of a utility plugin is something like Auto-Tune, which can take a vocal performance and nudge it back into key if your singer goes flat or sharp by a little bit. Keep in mind that with Auto-Tune, the further off the singer is, the harsher you'll have to set the plugin, and you'll definitely be able to hear it working, which can sometimes sound worse than the original performance. Some utility plugins can also be used artistically, like how T-Pain uses Auto-Tune to create a robotic, step-sounding voice using extremely harsh Auto-Tune settings. But the majority of these types of utility plugins are just going to serve to fix things that are wrong with your track or introduce something that may not be found in a rack unit. In the last category, we have guitar plugins. While your average audio producer may not consider these their own separate category, as they can be seen more in the vein of our first category, I've always got guitar in the brain, so I personally see them as something all their own. Guitar plugins typically act as a modeling amplifier, but can be much less expensive and only take up the same amount of space that your computer already takes up, so they can be perfect for those people who don't have the real estate for a full amplifier or want to record silently. One of the most popular guitar plugins I use is called Amplitube by IK Multimedia. It's got quite a few different amplifier, stomp box, and cabinet models, with the ability to change your mic positioning, speaker type, and numerous other settings to get a great quality guitar recording with nothing more than your favorite guitar, an interface, and your computer. I honestly just use Amplitude to mess around with amps that I'll probably never own, so it does a really good job of modeling those amps from what I've heard when demoing them in stores or listening to videos of people demoing them. For example, one of my favorite amps is a Soldano SLO100, and while I'll most likely never pony up the $4,000 to get one, I can have some great fun in Amplitude playing around with one.
Some famous guitarists, like Ryan Bruce and Tim Henson, will even release plugins created using their personal rigs. So if you've got a tone that you're chasing and don't want to buy the exact gear that they have or use some more budget-friendly alternative pieces of analog gear, you can download their plugin and get their tones nearly in instantly. It's honestly a really cool concept. When it comes to actually using your plugins, you can think of them in a similar manner to guitar pedals. We add them to our signal chain to introduce different effects to the track they're applied to. There's two major locations we can put plugins, usually known as pre and post, and that refers to whether we're putting the plugin before the fader, or the master channel volume, or after the fader. Any plugins that we put pre fader will be affected by the volume we set the fader to. So for an effect like compression, where we want to even out the volume of the track, we put that pre fader. For a plugin that we put post fader, it means that when we bring the fader volume down to make the track quieter, it's going to make any sound or effect the plugin produces quieter as well. Essentially, any pre-fader plugins sort of become part of the track when it comes to your final volume level, while post-fader plugins are unaffected by the fader and retain their characteristics regardless of the fader volume change. It's not an entirely accurate analogy, but you can start by placing your plugins similar to how you'd place pedals. Think of pre-fader as placing pedals before the amp, so all your effects that you typically put there, like your compression, filter, pitch, gating, and dynamics going pre-fader, and your reverbs and delays going post-fader while putting your modulation wherever it works best. For an example here, let's look at my plugin setup for my vocal mic right now. I've got three plugins pre-fader and one post-fader. First in the chain, I'm running Clarity VX, so that right away it gets rid of any excess noise from the background and ensures all my subsequent plugins are working from a clean slate. Next, I'm running a compressor modeled after an LA-2A. This ensures that if I get loud when I laugh or go on a tangent about something that gets me excited, my overall volume level stays the same it's just when I'm really talking. The compressor still allows you to hear the emotion and dynamics of my voice, so I don't have to be careful about what volume I'm speaking at, but it prevents you from needing to turn down the volume every time I get a little loud. After the compressor, I'm running a de-esser. I have a lot of sibilance in my voice, which are your S and T noises that occupy the highest frequencies of the human vocal range, so a de-esser helps to bring that down but placing it after the compressor ensures that any sibilance the compressor boosts is knocked back down to a level that doesn't make you cover your ears. My only post-fader plugin is a very light room reverb, because of course, reverb makes everything better. Now of course, I'm in a room right now, but because my studio is acoustically treated, there's very little natural reverb in the space, which can cause it to sound very unnatural when I talk. Plugins are a huge topic, and while this just barely scratches the surface of everything they can do for you, I hope I answered any basic questions you have about them and how to use them, as well as some real-world examples of how plugins can be used to your benefit when you record your music, your audiobook readings, or even record the sounds of your night terrors to sell on Bandcamp as experimental noise recordings. <laughs> I'm by no means an expert on plugins, but if this episode left you with any questions, don't hesitate to get in touch, and I'll try to answer them to the best of my ability, or at least point you in the right direction. Speaking of plugins, did you guys know that the first ones came out way back in 1996? Steinberg, the makers of Cubase, actually created the VST format for virtual plugins, so it makes sense that they were responsible for releasing the first ones. The original plugins were actually a bundle released with four different ones. E-Spatial was a very rudimentary room reverb. Choirus was a type of chorus effect that contained a shimmer function. Stereo Echo was a basic delay that had stereo and panning capabilities where you could adjust the left and right amounts independently, and lastly, Auto Panner, a plugin that moves sound from left to right with an adjustable speed and width. 
We've talked a lot about virtual products today, but you know what computers will never be able to do for you? Give you a free shirt. Yeah, that's right. I bet you your computer can't clothe you. Well, mine can't either, but you know what? I've got a solution for that. If you send me a message on any of my socials or shoot me an email telling me about your favorite piece of budget gear and why you like it, you'll be entered to win a free Pedals and Pickups podcast shirt. You can check out what it looks like on the show's Instagram, and I'll be drawing a winner at the end of March. Reach out over Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com to suggest topics or chat about gear. And if you like the show and want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. Hopefully, I'm not too, doing too bad right now on my uh, trip, but I, I know, especially at this point, I'll be really excited to get back here and hang out with you guys for real again. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. By all means, hit me up. If I have the ability to, I'm going to answer as quick as I can, and I'll see you guys next time. Take care.